Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today, we're going to take a selective look back at the 1980s output of one of the few independent production companies and distributors from the era to still be in business today, Troma Films. Most everyone who is any kind of fan of 80s movies and or of horror films in general knows one specific trauma movie, The Toxic Avenger. And most everyone who is any kind of fan of modern movies knows at least one filmmaker to have come out of trauma, Guardians of the Galaxy writer-director James Gunn. But Toxie and James Gunn are just two small parts of the intricate puzzle that is the history of of Troma Films. The history of Troma Films begins at Yale University when two students, Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hers, meet in the late 1960s. Initially, the two did not get along, but begrudgingly hung out with each other because Hers had a pinball machine in his dorm room and Kaufman had the only television set in the dorms. After graduation, the pair went their separate ways. Kaufman went back home to New York City to start making films, while hers went on to study law at New York University while harboring a secret desire to become a screenwriter. The pair would come back together in 1973 after hers's then-girlfriend, now-wife Maris, took him to see a movie her friend Kaufman had worked on called Cry Uncle. She would facilitate a meeting between the two, and Kaufman would hire hers to work on sugar cookies, a softcore crime drama that Kaufman had written and was producing with another friend of his, Oliver Stone. In 1974, Kaufman and hers would start their own company, Troma Films. It would be a few years before Kaufman and hers would make their own damn films, and Kaufman would supplement his income by working in various capacities on films like Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, The Final Countdown, and My Dinner with Andre. Now, part of the problem of covering the trauma films from 30 to 40 years ago is that, as an independent instead of a studio, they wouldn't get paid much attention to during the era, so one really has to know how and where to look for the information. As Troma's webmaster from 2003 to 2005 and the person who created the Troma Movie Database on the Troma.com website, I know where to look for much of that information, as it was part of my job to make that information available to the Troma fans. And as Troma's webmaster who created the Troma Movie Database, I also know which Troma movies weren't actually Troma movies at the time. For example, take Max Kalmanowitz's 1980 horror film The Children, the film was originally released into theaters by World Northall, an independent distributor from the 1970s that mostly specialized in bringing Chinese kung fu movies to the States. They would release the children into theaters in June of 1980. After a couple of releases on VHS, later on in the decade, the film would literally disappear for nearly 20 years 
until Lloyd and Michael made a deal with the film's writer and producer, Carlton Albright, to put it out for the first time on DVD in 2005 in a special 25th anniversary edition. But if you look up the children on Google, the Google summary will tell you Troma Entertainment was the production company for the film, which just isn't true. They had nothing to do with the production and would have no involvement with the film before or after that one DVD release. It also doesn't help that a lot of independent distributors in this era did regional releases of their films. At a time when a studio would be sending their films out to 800 to 1,000 theaters on opening day, a company like Troma could only afford to strike 50 to 75 35mm prints of their movies. So they'd open their movies on 50 to 75 screens, mostly drive-ins and indie hardtops, in one part of the country, like southern Florida or central Ohio or the Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, play the film there for a couple weeks, and then have those prints shipped to another region and keep repeating this pattern over and over again until the film had hit every market. Sometimes, in the day before VHS became affordable to most everyone, a film might even make a second or third swing through a region several months after it last played there, if it proved popular before. The movies I'll mention on this episode are ones that, through one way or another, I know received some kind of theatrical release in the United States. I may have missed one or two, and there's probably one or two that you won't hear about because they weren't actually trauma movies, like 1987's Street Trash, which is about as trauma-esque as a movie can get, but was actually released by Lightning Pictures, the genre arm of Vestron Pictures. We will definitely be talking about Vestron, Lightning, and Street Trash on a future episode. So let's get into Troma's first movie, Squeeze Play. The film tells the story of a male softball team who is challenged by a female softball team to see who is the best. It's got a lot of TNA and a bunch of silly gags, including one where one of the male softball players gets the ball stuck between his naked butt cheeks during a game. Don't ask. The film was directed by Kaufman, under the pseudonym Samuel Weil, and was filmed across the Hudson River on the other side of the George Washington Bridge, a few miles from Troma's headquarters in Hell's Kitchen. The film would initially open in Norfolk, Virginia, as the B title along with the Alan Arkin, Peter Falk comedy, The In-Laws, in October 1980, where the film would gross $42,000 in that one theater after only eight weeks. It wouldn't make its way into Troma's home base market of New York City until May of 1981. In a May 1981 article about Troma in the New York Times, it was stated that Squeezeplay had already grossed $8 million in theaters against a cost of $300,000 to produce the movie and another $300,000 to cover prints and advertising. Squeezeplay would open in 74 theaters in the greater New York City metropolitan region, including the Lowe's Astor Plaza, which at the time was known as the place to see event movies. Movies like Superman, Star Wars, and the Dino De Laurentiis 1976 remake of King Kong played at the Astor Plaza because it could seat more than 
thousand people at a time. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey at the Astor Plaza in December 2001 there. I saw Raimi's Spider-Man there. I saw the Lord of the Rings trilogies there. But in early May of 1981, the summer movie season would not really begin until Memorial Day at the end of the month, which is how Troma was able to book their movie into one of the best theaters in New York City. The film got a not-quite-positive but not-quite-negative review from the New York Times' Janet Maslin and would play for several weeks in the region before moving on. The last market Squeeze Play would play in was Los Angeles in October 1982, a full two years after that single-screen opening in Virginia, where it would play as the B title at drive-ins with another trauma title, Waitress. Los Angeles would be Squeeze Play's last stop with a final gross of over $18 million. Their second production would be Mother's Day, a horror film directed by Lloyd's brother Charles about two deranged murderous men who kidnap three young women on a camping trip and bring them home to meet their crazy mother. Charles Kaufman wrote the script with future Law & Order SVU showrunner Warren Late and produced the film with hers. Lloyd Kaufman would get an associate producer credit on Mother's Day as he would have limited involvement on the film, being busy shooting and then editing squeeze play. Mother's Day would actually get released in theaters first, having been picked up for distribution by United Film Distribution Company, which was operated by the United Artists Theaters chain. The film would open in 78 theaters in New York City, New Jersey, and Connecticut on September 19, 1980, mostly in United Artists Theaters. Like with Squeeze Play, Mother's Day would cycle from area to area. It would arrive in theaters in Los Angeles on my 13th birthday, November 14th. The $115,000 film would get atrocious reviews from critics in 1980. Roger Ebert absolutely hated the film, wondering on an episode of Sneak Previews why anyone of any age would possibly want to see this movie and it would do mixed business in theaters. It would become something of a cult film years later, and Saw franchise director Daryl Lynn Bowsman would remake the film in 2010 with risky business star Rebecca De Mornay as mother. While Squeeze Play was making its way across the country, Kaufman and hers would start production on their second film, Waitress. Three comely waitresses must contend with their diner's lecherous cook and its horrible patrons. The film, produced under the title Soup to Nuts, and directed by Kaufman and Hers in the summer of 1981, is only notable today for being the first on-screen credit for future Law & Order Sex and the City star Chris Noth, as well as an early credit for Tony Dennison from The Closer and Major Crimes. Based on the success of Squeeze Play, Troma was able to strike 150 Prince of Waitress and cover more regions at the same time. When the movie opened in New York City on September 17, 1982, a few months after circulating around the drive-in circuit in the South, Troma was able to book the film into 85 theaters in the area, including four theaters in Manhattan, when they were only able to get that one screen in Manhattan for Squeeze Play a year and a half earlier. But the film would not play as long as Squeeze Play, and not gross as much, only bringing in about $12 million after less than a year.
Anticipating success with Waitress, Kaufman and hers would start production on their next movie, Stuck on You, almost immediately after they finished Waitress. A couple with marriage problems go to family court, where a judge takes them back in time to view lovers throughout the ages. As Troma Advertising would put it, from Adam to Eve and cave couples to coupling Columbus, and from Attila and his sex huns to King Arthur and his knights of the raunch table, you'll come unglued with laughter. The film would feature the first of what one could actually call a known personality who would appear in a trauma film, Professor Irwin Corey, who would play the couple's therapist. Although the film supposedly opened in American theaters in January of 1983, I can only find 56 playdates in Los Angeles on October 7th, 1983, and in New York City starting February 3rd, 1984, where it opened in 38 theaters. The New York Times' Janet Maslin was once again assigned to review the new trauma film in town, and once again, she didn't exactly hate it. Troma's style can't exactly be called distinctive, she wrote, but at least it's identifiable. Dumb gags, food fights, and bathroom jokes are accompanied, if not redeemed, by an overriding cheerfulness and a willingness to try just about anything. Kevin Thomas in the Los Angeles Times was less kind, but it's funny today to see reviews that consider Kaufman and Weil to be two separate people. The film would do considerably less business than the first two trauma sexy comedies. Exact numbers are unavailable, but it's estimated that number was below $10 million. One of the first movies Troma would distribute that they were not involved in the production of was Richard W. Haynes's Splatter University, a not very good horror-slash-thriller in which a sociology instructor finds her new teaching duties at a private college interrupted by the presence of a killer mental hospital patient. The only thing notable about the film is that it was shot with a budget of around $26,000. Haynes had been working for Troma as a sound editor on Mother's Day and waitress while he and his partner John Michaels scrounged up funds to complete post-production. Haynes would become the house editor for Tromo movies such as Stuck on You, the first churn-on in The Toxic Avenger, which would soon lean to the opportunity to direct Class of Newcomb High with Lloyd Kaufman, films that we'll get to soon. But since Haynes was working for Troma, he gave Kaufman and hers a look at the film, and they would end up signing a short-term distribution license of only three years. A normal distribution license for a company like Troma would be in the 10 to 20 year range, so Troma got right to work getting the film out to theaters. The film would start arriving in theaters on July 13, 1984, and play throughout the year. In an interview many years later, Haynes did say the movie was profitable, which shouldn't be too surprising considering the film was produced for only $26,000, but he didn't give an actual number. The fourth Troma sexy comedy from Kaufman and Hers, the first churn-on, would continue the trend of diminishing returns. The threadbare storyline follows a group of teenage summer campers and their counselor, 
who share stories of their first sexual experiences when an avalanche traps them in a cave, and was somehow inspired by Michael Herr's meeting his wife Maris at a summer camp when they were kids. The movie is generally considered to be the best of the four trauma sexy comedies, but trauma would have trouble getting similar numbers of bookings as their previous titles. When it opened in New York City on October 12, 1984, the movie would only play in 13 theaters in the entire New York City metropolitan area, a good 65% lower than Stuck on You just a year earlier, and nearly 85% fewer than Waitress the year before that. It would be the first time Troma worked with Mark Torgel, who would go on to star in Troma's biggest movie a year later, and it would be the first ever screen appearance in any form of one Vincent Philip D'Onofrio. And, had Kaufman and hers been a little smarter, it could have also been the film debut of Madonna Louise Chacon. September 13, 1985, saw the release of When Nature Calls, the second trauma movie to be directed by Lloyd Kaufman's brother, Charles. It's a silly comedy about a construction worker who becomes fed up with his foreman and life in the big city, so he takes his wife and kids on a wilderness adventure with a bunch of trailers for fake movies thrown in just for shits and giggles. For a trauma movie, it's not that bad, although future Academy Award nominee David Strathairn's portrayal of an Indian named Weejun is sadly inappropriate. There's also a lot of cameos from a weird assortment of people, including comedy legend Maury Amsterdam, wrestling legend Freddie Blassie, Watergate legend G. Gordon Liddy, and baseball legend Willie Mays, as well as pre-fame roles from 90210 dad James Eckhouse and Star Trek The Next Generation's Gates McFadden. At the time, I had never heard of Troma, but what drew me first to this movie was its poster, which I had seen in the lobby of a theater, a parody of the Gone with the Wind poster, which you can see on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com. The film would first open in New York City, although only on 10 locations that were dubbed Troma Team Theaters in the ad. Which brings us to the movie that both made the company and kind of damaged it. The Toxic Avenger. Meet little Melvin. He's a 90-pound weakling. Everyone hated Melvin. Yeah, I'm gonna take this mop and shove it down your throat. They teased him. I'm gonna do it with you. Okay. They taunted him. They tormented him until he had a horrifying accident and fell into a vat of nuclear waste. Transforming little Melvin into a hideously deformed creature of superhuman size and strength. Melvin became the Toxic Avenger. The first superhero born out of nuclear waste. Yes, the muggers and the rapists didn't know what law and order was until the Toxic Avenger came to town. Holy shit! I don't know what it was, but it saved my life. All right, everybody, drop your tacos or I'll blow your brains out. The vandals and the perverts had their way with the little people of Tromaville until the Toxic Avenger ripped them apart. 
the Toxic Avenger. His face is so terrifying. We can't show it to you now. You'll have to see the movie for yourself. The Toxic Avenger can bend steel with his bare hands. Leap small cars in a single bound. He crushes drug pushers. Smashes hit and run drivers. And gives all criminals their just desserts. The Toxic Avenger. He's a hero. He's a fighter. He's a lover. Well, Norman, you're beautiful. The good citizens love him. The fat and corrupt hate him. Kill that bastard for me. Gotta kill him. Yeah. Will he survive? For incredible, explosive action, you must see the Toxic Avenger. He's a different kind of hero. The Toxic Avenger is coming to your town. Look out. After finishing their fourth sexy comedy in less than three years, Kaufman and hers were doing sales for their films at the Cannes Film Festival and Film Market in 1983, when Kaufman had read an article in one of the trade papers covering the market that the horror films were losing their popularity. Wanting to move away from the sexy comedies he and hers were primarily known for, Kaufman would revive an idea for a horror movie he had come up with while working on Rocky. He had the title, Health Club Horror, and the basic idea, something bad would happen to a group of people trapped in a health club. But as he and screenwriter Joe Ritter worked on the script, the film would become less a horror film and more of an absurd superhero comedy film with some horror-slash-gore elements. Working with their biggest budget to date, a cool half a million dollars, Kaufman and hers would begin shooting in various locations around Upper New Jersey in the summer of 1983. This would be the first movie of 15 trauma movies to date that have taken place in the fictional city of Tromaville, New Jersey, the toxic chemical capital of the world. Population 15,000. Because horror was still relatively hot, thanks in large part to the surprise success of New Line's A Nightmare on Elm Street the year before, Troma was able to book the Toxic Avenger into 45 screens around the New York City metropolitan area on April 4, 1986. Stephen Holden, the Times critic who reviewed the film, recognized the film was low-budget trash, but also noted that it had a maniacally farcical sense of humor. The film would gross $140,000 in its first three days, but by the second weekend, many theaters would pair it with a second feature, 
like Cannon's P.O.W. The Escape, starring David Carradine. Like many other trauma movies, the film would travel from region to region, hitting each for a few weeks until the numbers suggested it was time to move on. The Toxic Avenger would finally reach the Bay Area in the second weekend of October, more than six months after that initial New York opening. In Santa Cruz, the film would play at the local art house theater, the Nickelodeon, Friday and Saturday night at midnight. That's how my friends and I first experienced the wild and wacky world of trauma. In a theater with less than 100 seats and with a whole bunch of Santa Cruz weirdos. It was great. And my friends and I would see it again the following weekend. It didn't last long in Santa Cruz, just a couple weekends, but it opened a whole new world for my movie-going experiences and my life, as I will get into more towards the end of this episode. When The Toxic Avenger was finally played out in theaters more than a year later, the film had grossed more than $15 million. The film would spawn three sequels, an 11-issue comic book series from Marvel, and a 13-episode syndicated cartoon show called The Toxic Crusaders, which itself would spawn a series of tie-ins, including video games for the Sega Genesis and Nintendo NES systems, action figures, top trading cards, board games, Halloween costumes, and its own eight-issue Marvel comic series. The success of The Toxic Avenger would also forever alter the course of trauma films. While it would still release some non-genre titles, the bulk of their releases from then on would be horror and horror-adjacent titles. John Golden's Fat Guy Goes Nutsoid was first released in the theaters in September of 1986. Two brothers befriended a 350-pound escaped mental patient, the titular Fat Guy, who, spoiler warning, only goes somewhat nutsoid, and accompany him on his misadventures in the big city. Originally shot in 1983 as Zeisters, Troma was able to acquire this rather cheaply because it had gone unsold for nearly three years. I saw this at a dollar house in San Jose, as I saw many a Troma movie of the era sometime in 1987. It might have even been a double feature with one of our next two films, but I'd have to check my old film diaries if I still had them for that time frame. It's not a very good film, and if you absolutely must track it down, see if you can spot three-time Oscar nominee Joan Allen as Lala, or Oscar nominee Amy Madigan as one of the women at a funeral. The next trauma movie, Class of Newcom High, would not be directed by Kaufman and hers, but by Kaufman and Richard W. Haynes. Tromaville's honor students are being transformed into rampaging freaks when toxic waste from the nuclear power plant next to their school starts to leak into their water supply. By now, Kaufman's M.O. is becoming rather clear. Pointed political commentary hidden under layers of ooze and blood and boobs. With a hard-rocking soundtrack from mostly unheard musical artists, along with one or two you may have heard of. The film would open at 33 theaters in the New York City area on December 12, 1986, before rolling out across the country in early 1987. 
The film would spawn no less than four follow-ups, two made in the early 1990s and two made in the mid-2010s. Bob Dolan's Monster in the Closet is an incongruity within the 1980s trauma filmography. It's a PG-rated horror comedy featuring several actors you may have actually heard of before this movie came out, as well as two younger actors who would become much more famous in their adult years. After several people and a dog are found dead in their closets, a mild-mannered reporter, her son, and a befuddled professor band together to uncover the mystery. The cast includes veterans Claude Akins, John Carradine, Paul Dooley, Howard Duff, Henry Gibson, Donald Moffat, and Stella Stevens. Kevin Peter Hall, better known as Harry from Harry and the Hendersons, and the Predator from Predator, plays the monster in the closet. And those future stars? 10-year-old Stacy Ferguson, who we would all know better later on as Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas, and 13-year-old Paul Walker, who of course starred in the first seven Fast and Furious movies before his untimely passing in November 2013. The film would find some success in theaters and on home video, prompting Troma to create 50th Street Films, which aimed to release more mainstream movies without being saddled by the horror-comedy expectations that came with the Troma name. Ironically, the first 50th Street film release would be 1990's Bride of Reanimator, which definitely would have fit in the Troma wheelhouse. But the best-known 50th Street film release would be Hayao Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro, which would not arrive in American theaters until May of 1993, nearly five years after its Japanese release. That film would open in 51 theaters in Los Angeles on May 7th, and in 41 theaters in New York City on May 14th, but American audiences weren't quite in tune with Miyazaki, as they would be a few years later thanks to Princess Mononoke and his Oscar-winning film Spirited Away, and the film would do a modest $1.5 million in theaters here. But right now, we're talking about Monster in the Closet. The movie would open in the Southwest on January 30th, 1987, then make its way up to New York City on May 15th, and it would show up on the West Coast in the fall. At $3 million, it would be amongst the most expensive films Troma would be involved in, but the film would only gross about half its production budget. Peter George's Surf Nazis Must Die, which initially hit theaters the 4th of July weekend of 1987, is easily one of the worst Troma movies ever released. But who the fuck cares? You're not going to get something as great as The Untouchables or Full Metal Jacket when you see something called Surf Nazis Must Die. The story, threadbare as it is, is about a gun-wielding woman whose son is murdered by neo-Nazi surf punks in a post-apocalyptic future, hunting them down for some bloodthirsty revenge. The film is shit at every level. The acting is shit. The script is shit. The music is shit. The cinematography is absolute shit. The only thing that is remotely enjoyable about the film is when Mama Washington starts killing some fucking Nazis. 
it's still stupid fun, which should be experienced once. The absolute outlier in the trauma film canon of the 1980s is Richard Horian's Student Confidential. It's not a sexy comedy and it's not a horror film, but rather a straight-up drama. Four high school students are led into the world of adult vices by their guidance counselor, who happens to be a mysterious and suicidal millionaire. Two of the students are played by Eric Douglas, son of Kirk and youngest brother of Michael, and Marlon Jackson, older brother of Michael. At the time of filming, Eric Douglas would have been 28 and Marlon Jackson 29. The $4 million movie was, at the time, Troma's highest budgeted film. But when they finally released the movie on December 4th, 1987, it couldn't get very many screens when there was planes, trains, and automobiles, Three Men and a Baby, Fatal Attraction, Dirty Dancing, The Running Man, Baby Boom, Suspect, Nuts, Teen Wolf 2, Hello Again, and Less Than Zero taking up most of the available screens. In the New York area, Student Confidential would only play on seven screens, with only two being in Manhattan and one each in the Bronx and Queens. Eric Luzil's Lust for Freedom had an interesting beginning. In 1983, the town of Eli, Nevada, was concerned about the viability of their community after the closure of the biggest employer around, the Robinson Mine. They created a film commission to advertise the film as an ideal filming location. Luzil saw something about the town on a local Los Angeles nude broadcast where he was situated, and started negotiating with the film commission about making a movie there. In June 1985, Luzil and his team arrived in town to shoot what was then known as Georgia County Lockup. You see, women in prison movies were popular at the time, and the production would spend a week shooting around town before returning to Los Angeles for completion. Troma would pick the film up, and spend upwards of $125,000 to get it into release shape. That include changing the title. Georgia County Lockup would become Lust for Freedom, and it would first screen at the 1987 Cannes Film Market before arriving in American theaters on February 19, 1988. In New York, they'd be down to just five theaters, including the Times Square Theater in Times Square. In Los Angeles, it would open in just one theater, the Cameo Theater on Broadway in the downtown theater district, and it would open on a Monday, Leap Day, February 29th, no less, the top title of a quadruple feature that also included the 1986 Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra, Brian De Palma's 1983 version of Scarface, and the Eddie Murphy-Nick Nolte comedy 48 Hours. In a 2004 interview for the book The Producers, Profile in Frustration, director Eric Luzil stated that the film had earned over $2 million in ticket sales. Now, if you've ever met Lloyd Kaufman or watched one of his movies, it would come as little surprise that he might be considered a liberal. Troma's War... His next movie with Michael Hers was created as a criticism 
of then-President Ronald Reagan's attempts to glamorize armed conflict. In Truma's War, also known as A Thousand Ways to Die, a group of assorted Americans survive a plane crash on a Caribbean island and discover it is infested with crawling snakes and other venomous beasts, and, even worse, terrorists who are camped out on the island and preparing a full-out war on America with a biological weapon. Some trauma fans consider this to be the best trauma movie of the 80s. I only hold it fondly in my heart as being the first film appearance of Mr. Joe Fleischaker, who would go on to make more than a dozen other memorable appearances in trauma movies and dozen more appearances in various videos for trauma DVDs and the trauma website, often appearing as a character called Michael Hers before Joe's passing in 2016. When the film opened on December 9th, 1988, it was once again Janet Maslin who reviewed the film for the New York Times, but this time she would not be as kind as she had been to those sexy comedies years earlier. Troma would play up and adds a comment from the Variety review that wasn't a compliment per se, but it made for good copy in the ad. Troma's War makes Rambo 3 look like Lassie Come Home. The film opened in seven theaters in the New York metropolitan area, where moviegoers were promised to meet the glamorous stars of the movie at one theater, as well as receive some free Aroma du Troma perfume. There are no records of how many people showed up for those meet and greets, but I can tell you that 15 years later, in 2003, when I started working for Troma, they still had boxes of that stuff unopened in the basement of the Troma building in Hell's Kitchen. Originally, Kaufman and hers were not interested in making a sequel to The Toxic Avenger, but then they got two interesting offers that were too good to pass up. First, the company that released the first movie to great success in Japan, Gaga Communications, offered Troma a deal to subsidize part of the shoot up to $750,000 if they would make a portion of the sequel in Japan. And then American production and distribution company Lorimar Pictures offered to put up half of the budget up to $1.5 million dollars of a Toxic Avenger 2 in exchange for American home video rights. Being ever the clever boys, Lloyd and Michael took both companies up on their offers and then proceeded to shoot as much footage as possible while in Japan, taking only the actor who played Toxie, the makeup artist who would prep Toxie for filming each day, and a couple key staff members to Japan in order to save money. In fact, the directing duo would shoot so much footage in Japan that they had enough footage for two movies. So they rewrote the script to incorporate the extra footage and then split the film in two. The Toxic Avenger Part 2 would start arriving in theaters on February 24, 1989, while The Toxic Avenger Part 3, The Last Temptation of Toxie, arrived exactly nine months later. Neither film is very good, and they're only notable for being the debut of Black Dynamite himself, Michael Jai White, and that Lloyd finally stopped using that Samuel Weil credit. Part 2 had grossed 29000 from 15 theaters its opening weekend, 
on its way to a final gross of $793,000 after 44 weeks, while Part 3 would gross $52,000 from 43 years on opening weekend, on its way to a final gross of $364,000 after 25 weeks. There would be a fourth film in the series, 2001's Citizen Toxie, The Toxic Avenger Part 4, which in the opening minutes of the film states for the record that it is a direct continuation of the original movie, as if Parts 3 and 4 did not exist. There would be one additional benefit from Trauma's trip to Japan to make Toxic Avenger 2. While filming in and around Tokyo, Kaufman and hers would be approached by the heads of the Japanese video game corporation Namco, creators of Pac-Man, Pole Position, and Dig Dug, to create a kabuki-themed superhero film that could be exploited in other media, including video games. Thus, Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD was born. Namco and hers wanted to make a family-friendly film geared towards younger children. But Lloyd, being Lloyd, wanted to make the usual trauma mix of sex and violence. The film would be completed in 1990, but would sit on the proverbial shelf for almost six years while the various parties argued about competing PG-13 and R-rated versions. Eventually, both versions would get released into theaters and on home video. But it wouldn't do very well. The film today is best known to Troma fans as the movie from where the famous Troma car flip sequence would come from. Filmed for Sergeant Kabuki Man, Troma would find ingenious ways to recycle the footage for future Kaufman films Tromeo and Juliet, Terra Firmer, Citizen Toxie, Poultrygeist Night of the Chicken Dead, and Return to Newcomb High Volume 1. Troma would often luck into limited success. They would team up with writer-director-actor James Bond III for a blaxploitation film called Death by Temptation. Filmed by cinematographer Ernest Dickerson and starring a different world's Kadeem Hardison, the film would become much more attractive to buyers worldwide after Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing made names of co-stars Bill Nunn and Samuel L. Jackson. The film was made in 1988, but not get released into theaters until May 1990, where it would gross a respectable $2.2 million. Another lucky break would be Sizzle Beach, USA. Filmed in California in the late 1970s, the film would end up in Troma's catalog when they purchased some of Calm World Pictures' catalog after that company went bankrupt. Calm World released the film as Malibu Hot Summer in 1981, where it didn't do very much business. But if you look at the poster for that 1981 theatrical release, you'll notice a very familiar name just after the title. Kevin Costner. Now, when Troma bought the film, Costner had already starred in movies like Fandango, Silverado, and American Flyers, but he would still be a year away from his star-making churns in The Untouchables and No Way Out. When those two films became hits, Troma would retitle this film from Malibu Hot Summer to Sizzle Beach USA, redo the artwork to put the newly minted star front and center as if he were the star and not the fourth build supporting actor, 
And the movie would find success on VHS from stores looking for any movie with Kevin Costner. But most of their titles around this time were direct-to-video crap, with scintillating titles like Beware, Children at Play, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town, Curse of the Cannibal Confederates, and Rockin' Road Trip, or acquisitions of older titles like The Incredible Torture Show, which they would rename Bloodsucking Freaks, or Al Adamson's Girls for Rent, which would get renamed I Spit on Your Corpse. Today, Troma is best known as the home of yet another happy accident, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's Cannibal the Musical. Originally made as a three-minute trailer for their film class at the University of Colorado at Boulder in 1993, Parker and Stone were able to raise nearly $125,000 to make a feature, which they would shoot on weekends and during their spring break. The film, then titled Alfred Packer the Musical, would be completed over the summer and would have its world premiere at a local theater in Boulder on Halloween night, 1993. Parker and Stone would even create a fake protest to help promote the film. After they graduated and moved to Los Angeles, Parker and Stone would take their film to every distributor around. They had a list of companies, starting with the likes of Columbia, Disney, Fox, and Paramount at the top of the list, and then major dependents like Fox Searchlight, Gramercy, and Miramax, and then the indies like First Look, IFC, and Samuel Goldwyn. Troma was at the very bottom of the list, like somewhere around 75th on a list of 75. Yet Troma was the only company who took any interest in the young filmmakers and their movie, who saw the potential in it. According to Parker, Lloyd was the first person in the industry who was completely honest with them, and that honesty translated to weird kind of loyalty to Lloyd. When South Park would make them world famous a couple years later, the renamed Cannibal the Musical became a must-watch movie for fans of the show, and Troma had lucked into a gold mine. I started working for Troma in the summer of 2003. I had been working at a dot-com just a few blocks from the Troma building in Midtown Manhattan, employee number one at a growing large office machinery distributor. It paid well. I really liked my boss, Mark, and would be Mark's then-girlfriend, now-wife Allison, who would hook me up with the casting notices, which would help Film Jerk become a major movie and television news source in the early 2000s. But the job wasn't very fun, and it had nothing to do with the film industry in any way. I had only taken the job because it was the first job offer I had received after having moved to New York three months earlier, which just happened to be two days before 9-11. So when I saw on the Troma website in the summer of 2003 that they were looking for a webmaster, I thought to myself, well, fuck, I can do that. I already run a movie website. And I think that's the reason Lloyd and Michael hired me. But the pay was shit. Minimum wage, which in 2003 was $5.15 in New York City. But I was working in the film industry with two semi-legendary filmmakers who welcomed me into their fold. Yeah, I was a webmaster. 
I ran ran the online trauma store. I fulfilled orders and I updated the website regularly. But within a week of being there, Lloyd would come up to me at my desk, which was right next to the bathroom on that floor, and ask me, So, you fancy yourself a writer, huh? Well, yes I did. So he took me up to the fourth floor, where Gabe Friedman had his editing bay, and he had me watch a scene from a movie they were in post-production with, Tales from the Crapper. He had Gabe cue up a scene early from the movie. A street barker is walking around what looks like just outside the Egyptian theater in Hollywood when he sees something fall from the sky and land at a nearby building. He goes to investigate, and he sees a green light behind a ground-level window. The scene lasts about a minute in total. When it's done, Lloyd says to me, Write up some voiceover dialogue for this. You've got two hours. Oh, shit. Two hours? Was I up to the task? Yeah, I was up to the task. It only took me a moment to come up with the hook. So there's this guy walking around Los Angeles chasing some strange plate-like thing that was falling from the sky. And then he would get eaten up by some strange thing that was imbued with a big green light. Why, my brain went, guacamole! Within an hour, I had my voiceover typed up and printed out. I thought it would be funny to juxtapose the street barker in Hollywood talking it up like he was Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade in search of guacamole. It was fairly stupid, but Lloyd loved it. He even had me record what I wrote. I was ecstatic, over the moon, my first real contribution to a movie, and I was recording my own material. I also got to record other lines, throw away gags in the background of other scenes. During my two years at Troma, I also got to assist with watching submissions to the company for possible distribution. I was recruited to appear in a number of DVD extras. I got to rewrite badly translated subtitles for a couple of foreign pickups. I got to play Toxie at several live events. Now, being six foot three and 230 pounds, kind of self-volunteered me for that role. I even got to talk to Hayao Miyazaki once on the phone when he called to talk to Lloyd about something related to Totoro, and Lloyd was on another call. Just talk to him, I was ordered. I'll be done in a minute. I was also given the freedom to leave a little early some nights to catch a press screening at one of the local screening rooms, which were not that far away from the Troma building. But what I loved most about the job was sharing a cab almost every night with Lloyd. We lived but three blocks from each other on the Upper East Side neighborhood of Yorkville, and over the course of two years, I got to know the Lloyd Kaufman behind that iconoclastic public facade. We'd talk about old movies, new movies, filmmakers, art, the city, and everything else. But with that access, there were times I'd also get roped into schlepping something cumbersome to his house because I was a good 20-plus years younger than him. But hey... The cab ride was still free, Lloyd would be paying for it, and from 50th and 10th on the west side to 84th and 3rd on the east side could be an expensive ride if traffic really sucked, but it sure did beat riding the subway. I got to meet a lot of great people working at Troma, 
most of whom I stayed in contact with through social media like Facebook for years after, once my wife and I moved back to Los Angeles in 2005. A number of my trauma co-workers moved to Los Angeles soon thereafter, and it would be fun to run into them at some movie function somewhere. As I record this episode in October of 2020, Troma is a shell of the company I worked for nearly two decades ago, which itself was a shell of the company that existed 20 years before that. But it's an experience I wouldn't give up for anything, and it's all thanks to my friend Dick Hollywood, who dragged a begrudging 19-year-old to a midnight movie in a small college town one night. Thanks, Dick. And thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. So please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.